Hey everyone, this is Brian from the Tennis IQ Podcast. Josh and I hope that you are enjoying the content and discussions that we put out week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us to continue to produce quality episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Currently, we have three tiers of support, the fan level at $3 per month, the supporter level at $7 per month, and the champion level at $20 per month. Benefits of joining the Tennis IQ podcast community include episode transcripts, participation in book club discussions, and access to monthly masterclasses with me and Josh. For more on these benefits of support, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. and welcome to episode number 150 of the Tennis IQ podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And uh, thank you for listening to to this particular episode. It's a milestone for me and Josh uh, since we've been doing this podcast since July of 2020. So over three years and um, it's been a lot of fun to produce and, and do this and, and really uh, interact with all the community. I don't know about you, Josh, but even recently I've been um, running into more and more people who've listened to the podcast or have recommended it to other people. I uh, even got a really nice note from a, a past client about our interview with Coleman Gearhart. So it's really been fun to be part of the community. Absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah. Different people that I've interacted with both, both, professionally and also outside of that that um that maybe I wouldn't have expected um you know would have listened or I didn't know that they listened and you know maybe they they've been listening regularly or they've heard an episode or a few episodes and yeah, it's really really cool it's really special just how how this has you know developed over this past few years and you know I I've, I've certainly you know learned and grown a lot from from this experience and uh yeah looking forward to to seeing how it you know continues to to blossom yeah absolutely so it has been a lot of fun and a great learning journey and with that in mind for today's episode we want to revisit a topic that we have talked about more recently which is the the idea of decision making in tennis that that is you know maybe one of those things josh where perhaps it crosses between the mental game and you know the tactical strategic piece of the game but i mean obviously you're having to make decisions and that's a mental process and that can be challenged at certain times in matches and so we both read a paper uh the name of it is effects of decision training on decision making and performance in young tennis players in applied uh approach or applied research uh the authors are luis garcia gonzalez alberto moreno alexander gill and M. Perla Moreno and Fernando del Vilar. Um, and so we wanted to talk about this in a slightly different way to our other episodes on decision-making because what was presented here was an intervention for actually training players on how to make better decisions in their matches. And um, if we think about a lot of matches where there are errors we could easily distinguish between those that might just simply be execution errors where perhaps that was the right shot at the right moment, but I just didn't make it. 
you know, and, and, and maybe there's an adjustment about spin or power or whatever. And then there are errors in which well, that was not a good decision. I should not have been going for that spot at this time, or maybe I was bailing out on the point. Um, and so this article, I thought, presented a very interesting way to, to train players on how to make better decisions. And, and then they saw the results of that, of that training. So um, I guess we'll just start, I'll stop there, Josh, to get your just initial impressions of, of what we both read. And maybe it's you, you know, how you might see us going about explaining the utility of it. Yeah, I think it was definitely an interesting, an interesting article and an interesting method that they went about in terms of, um, yeah, working with junior players, um, and and they they they, um, made an effort to really try to you know pick out players from the same club around the same level. They they tried to really you know control those variables, um, and. They, yeah, they they worked on this decision making piece. They they used video analysis in order to, um, yeah, w- work with players over a ten week period of time, in order to to help them with this piece. And in order, you know, they were looking back at video and you know saying, was this the correct decision or not based on certain parameters, based on you know the situation of the point, whether someone's, you know, on one side of the court compared to the other based on, you know, strengths and weaknesses based on a number of different factors, but helping them through a systematic process, really try to develop their, their decision-making process um, better compared to a control group who didn't have that, that same process. Um, So, no, I I think it was, uh, it was very interesting. And, And as we start to think about some of the applications and how people can, use this in their own game. I think it's just important to, to to start by thinking about what the the actual study is and you know one other thing that I would say is um you know the the study's not necessarily readily accessible just to to be accessed so if if people are interested we can we can absolutely send it to you via email just uh, send us a message or send us an email at tennisiqpodcast@gmail.com and we can send you over the um the PDF to it. Right. And this study, well, the study was published in 2014, so most likely it was conducted prior to that. And if we think about, you know, that's like 10 years ago to now, I mean, the development of video technology and analysis has grown so much more than it would have been at that time. So the ability to do what was done in the study is probably easier than, than it was, say, in 2013, 2014. So uh, you mentioned earlier, Josh, that they use video analysis. So why don't we walk through you know, exactly what was done, and then we can kind of talk about why this is, this is helpful. So the first part of the, the, uh, the intervention was to have players watch various points. And I think part of it was that they would choose some points that – they felt like they made a good decision on, and then they would choose some points where they maybe didn't, and they would get together with the coach on that. Maybe I have that wrong. There's some, or maybe that was suggested later as a as a as a means of doing it afterwards. But essentially, they're looking for particular decisions in a match, um, and the idea then is that the player will do his or her own analysis first, which I think is good. I think that's actually a good practice after any match 
is to have the player do the reflection first rather than being told what happens. Agreed. Right. So we want them to develop their kind of coaching voice in that way. And because if they don't know how to coach themselves, they'll never be able to do it on the court. Um, so they do that. And then they get together with an expert, presumably, you know, a, a coach, although they, they use the term expert. And then the idea was to analyze their decisions and analyze their reflections and come to some sort of agreement on here is what we really should be doing in this situation, maybe from this spot in the court, given your strengths, given your game style, et cetera, right? So um, they did use different models for decision-making, which are not, you probably have to get into the references to figure out what those exactly are. But what I guess what I would recommend, Josh, and see what you think, is when you're working with a coach, coming up with what what is our decision-making model going to be that we can use to decide whether this is what we think is the right decision versus um, not, right? And so um, I think that's also a great conversation for coaches to have. Um, and then once they have that, understanding of you know good decisions and and how to make them then then more matches are played and they continue to evaluate how the decision making process is going so um maybe help fill in some of the gaps josh if i've left them out in terms of that that intervention no i think that 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 absolutely i think you you covered you covered it i mean i think um some of the specific things that they were looking at in terms of the um, decision-making skills related to the opponent's position, the player's position, the ball trajectory, the intention of putting pressure on the opponent, which um, which really in, in this study meant trying to displace the opponent, keeping them off of the baseline, playing to their weak side, um, or defending, you know, in, in which really they referred to as uh, recovering position after a forceful shot from the opponent. So, so a lot of the main sorts of things that that we would try to think about in terms of positioning, in terms of ball trajectory or height, um, in terms of, you know, being able to add pressure. Um, so, so yeah, being able to analyze those decisions sort of through a, a pretty strict framework. Um, and yeah. And, and, you know, through the course of this study, over 13,000 actions were, were analyzed. So they actually used the number of, of different, people to um different experts to to sort of help with help with that process just just based on the the the, the sheer number of of actions that they were analyzing and again this was over a, an extended period of time but i i think you know something is to be said just in terms of everything that went into a study like this and um yeah, and I think it's also applicable to can be applicable to other situations yes it was done with junior tennis players 14 your old tennis players, but I, I, to me, it it feels very reasonable to to think that this could be applied to you know tennis players of of different levels of you know different ages, different ability levels, more advanced players, less advanced players as well. Um, in terms of really trying to have a system to both evaluate and improve upon decision making over time, and and I think there's you know we can start you know thinking about how how we do that, but, um, you know, whether it's something like video analysis and we have had, you know, seven shot tennis and swing vision, you know, we've had discussions 
um, about both of those programs. There's, you know, there, there are different ways that people can um, use video analysis to analyze their game. Sometimes maybe that's not accessible and, you know, somebody like a, a parent or a coach is, is um, having some, you know, has some way to sort of track what's going on in a match. So, you know, finding some way to be able to, I think, get some feedback on what we're doing, um, whether that's video, whether that's through somebody else, um, I think can be, can be really powerful. And I think it's uh, actually an underutilized tool in, in general. And I think it's underutilized for analyzing decisions because Definitely. even if you look at a swing vision, it's not necessarily applying the lens of that was a good mistake versus a bad mistake. So we were talking about this earlier. You know, a good mistake could be that this was the right shot to go for. I simply missed. And okay, the adjustment might be I have to hit it higher or I have to add more spin to bring it down or maybe I shouldn't have hit it so hard. Versus uh, an error that might just appear to be an unforced error, but it was really one in which I made the wrong decision. I went for the wrong target at the wrong time, et cetera, from the wrong place. And and that's important to differentiate. And that's what I think this study is going after. It's really classifying unforced errors into different categories or errors. One being more of a mental one, like you had a decision to make and we want you to make more good decisions. More good decisions will mean more balls in play, won't mean you're the end of your errors. But at least the errors that you'll be making are adjustable through spin, height, or adjustments in pace, most likely. Maybe there's something technical. Um, but it reminded me of something Nadal had said a few years ago when being interviewed by ESPN, how he said he didn't mind missing technically, which is more like the good mistake, the execution mistake, but he hated missing mentally which is about making a, a poor decision then that, re that results in an error because that's giving it away. That's a loss of discipline and, and, and we want to avoid that as much as possible. It also reminded me of a conversation I had with a very good player um, a couple of weeks ago. And we were, we were talking about decision-making and discipline and, and so forth. And he told me that when he's on the court, he never is making a choice about where to hit. He said everything he does is pre-programmed. His game has been practiced in such a way that no matter where he is on the court, what the situation is, he, he already knows what the good shot is. And, so, and then he just executes it. Now, he's a pretty high-level player. He's really done well at the you know, New England and national levels in both singles and doubles. So... Just think it's a very interesting way that a high-level player of his caliber thinks. He's never out there thinking, oh, should I go down the line or should I hit cross-court? It's already there. So he has a very solid decision-making framework established in his mind. Some of us might even call that a game plan. He has a very specific game plan, but he's bringing it to every match. And he practices that, that game plan. And I think this type of process begins to help players narrow down what should I be doing in certain situations? Maybe I don't have 10 options. Maybe there's really only one or two things I should do here 
and maybe I should practice those one or two things. And um, so I think that this is a really important part of the game so that we can stop making errors based on decisions, which is really us beating ourselves. And, uh, and, and I think if players can do something like this with their coaches, and, and maybe we can talk about how that could work, Josh, uh, I think it would make a huge difference in, in results, both singles and doubles. Totally. And I think, and I, I, first of all, I think the, the, um, the player that you're referring to, the situation you're referring to, I think that's, that's really impressive. I think, you know, most people don't necessarily have that, that clearly defined system um, where, uh, you know, where, where they have a plan where, okay, if I, if I get a ball cross court to my forehand in this position, this is where I'm going with that shot. Um, I think for a lot of players there, there tends to be a lot of thinking going on. They know they have options. Okay. I could hit the ball deep cross court. I could hit the ball, you know, deep down the line. I could hit a drop shot. I could hit a slice. You know, I, I have all these different tools. How do I, you know, and, and it can turn into sort of a last second decision or maybe more of a sporadic decision rather than really a decision that comes from some sort of clearly thought out system. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and, we, and we've talked about this in the past, but having something like um, directionals where you can just really look at, okay, if the ball is deep cross court, I tend to go deep cross court. If the ball is on either side, if the ball's inside the baseline, I'm tending to take that ball down the line, which, you know, really is in line with um, a lot of basic, you know, tennis strategy where, you know, in terms of some of the advantages of going cross court, you know, I, I have more court to hit into, I'm hitting over a lower part of the net. Um, you know, I, it, it, it tends to be the higher percentage shot where more, if I'm inside the baseline and I can hit an approach shot, then down the line becomes more of the, you know, becomes the play that we want to, to go to more often because we tend to take away angles from our opponent. So I think it's just, you know, can we find ways to simplify it? I don't think we need to have a decision-making framework that's overly, overly complex because in the moment we're making split, split second decisions oftentimes. And if we have too many different variables, we can say, or too many different options, then we tend to not make the best decision. We tend to make better decisions if we have fewer options and if we have a clear plan and, does that mean we're going to execute every time? No, absolutely not. But, you know, I, I think there's something to be said that if we can go about our process and if we can make the right decision and we, and we, and we're not successful and we lose the point or even we lose a match, can we, can we feel better about that? Can we feel more confident knowing that, Hey, I've made the right decision and more often than not, that's going to work out in my favor. Um, so I think, yeah, trying to get ourselves to a place like, like, you know, like they were working on in the study, like the player you were talking about, Brian, where we have a system, we have a framework so we can clearly make decisions. And, and we're doing that in, you know, sort of a, a logical way, but also I think a simplified way where we don't have to do so much analysis in the moment. It's, we, we just have a plan. It's something simple, like, okay, these situations I'm going cross court I'm playing high percentage, these sorts of situations, I'm taking the ball down the line. Maybe I have 
you know, and, and this could vary a bit between player to player. Some players like to come up to net more. Some players like to slice more. Some players are more or less aggressive. But I think in general, with some of these, you know, in terms of that decision making, in terms of if we want to even just break it down into cross court versus down the line, I think there's a lot of similarities really between different types of players in terms of how how aggressive or you know their age and level in terms of really what is the right shot in the moment. Yeah, and if we think about, I mean, what you're describing is is great, and I think that should be a kind of co-created collaborative effort between the player and the coach, you know, or 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 an expert. So, you know, for example, if you're an adult player and you don't have a primary coach, try to at least talk to someone who is an expert in tennis tactics or decision making and strategy, talk about your game and and then see if you can come up with a framework. And then that framework is what you will use to review your matches. So if you have swing vision or some other means of getting video of your matches, you'll want to use your framework based on your game to review what you're actually doing with the ball out on the court. And I think it's also interesting, Josh, to not just look at the whole match, but look at specific points in the match. I was watching a match this morning, a challenger tour match. And at the end of the first set, the decisions were not as good as they were earlier in the set. The pressure of the moment can really change how we think. It, the, you know, we know we're late in the set. We want to win the set. And through the maybe overly or this overly strong desire to end points and win points, you may find your decision making corrupted. And it's good to to note that. So beginnings of sets, ends of sets, different stages of the match are also interesting places for you to review. Um, and so you, you go through the video, go through that with your decision making framework and, and see where you can improve. If you do have a primary coach, then you can review that with that person uh, and, and come up with, all right, here are the good decisions that we made. Here are the ones that need some work. Let's, let's perhaps go work on those so that when you're in that situation, it's less of what should I do and more of here's the right shot. You know, I think then, Josh, really the time that there are options are when you are inside the court and this is either based on your skills, where you could go down the line, you could go cross, or maybe you could hit a drop shot. Um, but if you're beyond the baseline, behind the baseline, and you're in a corner, and you can't step into the ball, you probably should go cross. So there are going to be situations where there's probably one shot, and then there might be situations where there, there could be two to maybe three options, depending on on what you're good at. Um, And so when you start to look at the match through this process of reviewing video, knowing your decision-making framework, evaluating how you did, then coming up with a plan to improve what you did, and then continuing that process. And in this, for these players, they did this over the course of 10 weeks. And after the 10 weeks, there really was, or at least according to the, the statistical analysis, there was some significant improvement in decision-making. So what that means to me, though, is you're going to be making fewer unforced errors. 
fewer unforced errors is going to mean you're giving away fewer points um, and can only have a positive effect on your results. No guarantee, but it, it keeps you in matches. It keeps you in points. So I think you know, there's really, to me, strong motivation to want to go back and look at errors more through the lens of was it the right decision versus was this just a failure of execution? Absolutely. And I think really what it what a lot of it boils down to is can we try to avoid beating ourselves? Right. I think probably every tennis player has had a situation where a situation or probably multiple um, <laughs> where they feel like they've beaten themselves. And I think it happens, frankly, at every level. It happens in junior tennis, happens in, in adult adult tennis, it happens college, pros, it ha- happens everywhere. Um and, you know, I, th- I think there's different things that that can cause a player to beat themselves. I think decision-making is often one of them. I think maybe, you know, control over emotions. You know, I, I think there's a number of things that can cause a player to beat themselves. But I think, you know, if if we can feel confident that we're making the right decision the, the majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, um, if we can feel that we are yeah, you know, trying to go for the right shot, then it doesn't feel like we're beating ourselves. It doesn't feel like we are taking ourselves out of the match. And and what that means is we we put a lot of more pressure on our opponent to come up with the goods and to try to beat us, right? Because, um, you know, because we're not going to hand it to them. Um, and again, you know, I, I think people can put together their own sort of decision-making framework with, you know, maybe with the help of a coach, um, and, and think about what tools you can use, right? Something like video analysis can be really helpful here. Um, but, but try to, yeah, really come up with a framework that works for your game where you're playing high percentage, but you're playing into your strengths and, you know, and, and what you do on a particular day may look a little bit different, right? You are always going to have a different opponent on the other side of the court. Their, their game may fluctuate as well. So you have to adjust to, you know, the circumstances, but I think having something clearly defined that's that is high percentage, that's simple, um, where you don't have to think too much, and then you know, really, what that can do is if you're not, if you don't have to give the decision making process as much thinking because you have that clearly defined system, then you're sort of freeing up space to focus on other things. You're freeing up space to, you know, really bring intensity to your game, to really move your feet, to have you know that clear system and that clear plan for in between points you're you're essentially creating some men, you know men, more mental space that you can use in other parts of your game because you're not so focused on okay where do i go with this shot and where do i go with this shot and as brian said it's it's often just certain situations really where we have to decide right if there's going to be a lot of situations where you know if i'm at the baseline for instance and you know, as a right-handed player, if somebody hits an angled forehand to me that pulls me outside of the singles line into the doubles alley or even beyond, there should be one shot there. There should be, you know, the the shot that, that really should be played in that situation is is the cross-court forehand, right? You have a, a lot more court to hit into. You're hitting the ball over the lower part of the net, um, it, you know, if you try to go down the line there, you are essentially aiming for a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of the court over the higher part of the net. 
So is it more aggressive? Yes. Have we seen highlight reel shots of ATP WTA players hitting that shot successfully? Yes. Um, But is that high percentage for the club player? No. Is that high percentage for the ATP WTA player? No. So oftentimes it's, it really is that same sort of decision-making process that that really elite level player and the, you know, more recreational player can go about just being able to, to simply analyze, is this the right play? Is this a high percentage play? Does this play work more often than not? And I think for a situation like that cross court forehand, it's a more clear decision. As you said, Brian, for a, um, you know, a short ball that bounces at the service line, you know, sort of towards the middle of the court, maybe there's, maybe there's, two decisions or even three, you know, two or three options, right? You can go cross court, you can go down the line, you can hit that drop shot. You can even maybe go deep middle. So you have maybe multiple options, but again, can you spend the time ahead of time determining how, you know, most of the time, where do I want to go with that shot? And then can I practice that? Can I visualize that? Can I use that in matches so that it's not a matter of me using it for the first time or me maybe not feeling as comfortable with it when I'm actually in that situation. And I think the practice part is key is that so often when we talk to players about this type of thing or mental things, they won't necessarily work on it in practice. They'll just sort of save it for a match. Like the in-between point routine. It can be difficult to get players to practice that in practice or even a practice match. Because it's supposedly it's just practice and they'll save it for, for a tournament match. And I think that's a mistake. And that would be a mistake here. To really create a great way of making decisions, you have to, to practice it. And that could even just be us rallying, Josh. We could have our own framework. We could be hitting back and forth. But if you move me you know, to my right, I'm probably going to hit it at an angle back to my left, whether that's fully cross or back to the middle. Same on the other side. It's a great way for me to practice. So even, let's say, if you go back to our episode on where we talked about sort of like the three rules on decision-making, we could do a drill to practice this, Josh, for, at least for my rules. I put a cone in the middle of the court on your side, and you move me around. And every, for me, every shot that you're moving me around to, I have to go to the cone. So no matter where I am, unless it's right down the middle, I'm creating an angle over the lower part of the net to the cone. So it gets me in the mindset of, I know which way I'm moving and I know what angle I want to take on the ball. And then, then I hit it to that angle. So I never, I'm never in this particular drill, never going down the line. I'm always going at some angle. So even if you move me and I want to hit a forehand, I can hit an inside out forehand to the middle, right? And that's at an angle and goes to the lower part. So you can design a lot of drills that make the decisions easier for you through the target. Yeah, actually, I'm not even really making the decision there, Josh. I'm just being told to hit the ball to this target. Now, of course, we can go through, hey, this is why we're doing it. And this is the decision-making process that we're reinforcing here. Um, but that's, you know, that's one way. So you can work on that with your, with your coach. Um, so I think that the, the practice piece is, is super important. 
learning not to beat yourself is is very important. Um, reducing the number of options or what you want to do there, not only for what you said, Josh, but it also, to me, if you really believe in your decision-making framework, it removes doubts. Because a lot of times we're not sure what to hit. But if you totally believe in your decision-making framework and that it will deliver positive results, you've now removed a ton of doubt from the process of playing. And that makes tennis easier. You have confidence in what you're doing. Now you can simply just hit your shots with confidence. And you don't have to be worrying about, well, is that the right decision? What should I do here, etc.? So much of that mental processing is taken away and just frees you up to play the game, to be more in the moment. So I think this is really a huge, huge part of training that, that doesn't get enough attention. And I went to an academy earlier this week, and, and you see it even there. The, just the decisions that are being made are, it's not that they don't know what to do or, or whatever. It's just like that, this haven't been taught necessarily what's the right shot in that situation. It hasn't been trained enough. And so that's why I think this is a, it was an interesting study for us to read and, and, and share with the listeners. Definitely, definitely. And, and yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it, it really is about having a system and then, and then trying to be disciplined about it. I think probably at that academy or, you know, at, at tennis academies or tennis clubs or parks, around the U around the U S and, and outside it, if you were to ask a player, okay, if I, you know, if, if you get a deep ball, um, to the, you know, forehand or backhand side, where should we go with that shot? I think probably most of them could come up with the correct answer, but how often are they able to do that in the moment? How often are they able to stay disciplined enough to do that? The vast majority of the time, rather than just, some of the time. Um, I think, I think it's, yeah. And, and I think, I think it takes practice. I think it takes, you know, being able to analyze and reflect. I think also when we, you know, after a match, there's, there's a role here in terms of, can we journal about, you know, our performance? Can we have a system of reflecting and can we have a system of reflecting on, um, on our decision-making process? Did we have a system, you know, did, did we have some some sort of clearly defined system for where we go with with certain shots. Can we, you know, and, and how did we execute on that? And I think being able to honestly reflect on that also leads to better decision making over time. And I think there's also decision making in terms of other pieces of the game. For instance, our serve or our or our return, right? Maybe it's you know every um, every second serve we want to hit a certain type of serve, or we want to um, you know, hit a serve to a certain place. Um, you know, one, one thing that I've done that, that a coach told me a, a while ago that I've, that I've implemented. And also, you know, people that I've, some people that I've worked with have implemented is after hitting a double fault to, you know, the, the next serve that you hit should be, you should take something off it. You should, you know, that, that next serve that you hit should be more like a second serve because the last thing you want to do after a double fault is hit another second serve. Now, not everybody would necessarily agree with that, right? Some coaches would would say, you know, after that, after that, you want to maybe, you know, maybe you can hit a great serve and and you can make up for that that last point. So I'm not saying that's that's right for everybody. I'm just saying for for me personally, that's one example of me 
having some sort of clearly defined decision-making process. Cause I, you know, with my game, I, I, I just hate double faults and, mm-hmm. and they're a part of the game. They're going to happen really. If you don't double fault at all, that's not necessarily good either. You want, you know, generally you want to have at least maybe one or two double faults over the course of a match it means that you're, you know, you're going for something on your second serve. Um, but with too many double faults, it we're beating ourselves. We're, we're not putting pressure on the opponent to come up with something. So th- this is a system, you know, that I have used and I, I think it's been, been effective for me just in ter- and other players. Um, not something I came up with, but just a, a way to try to minimize mistakes after a mistake has already been made. So after that double fault, can I minimize risk by trying to put the next first serve in play? Or maybe it's something like, you know, maybe it's a decision where after I've made an unforced error from the baseline, the next the next shot that I hit, I'm trying to, you know, add some margin. I'm trying to add some spin. I'm trying to add some height over the net, trying to play a little further from the line so that I'm, you know, minimizing risk to some extent after that mistake has been made so that I'm not missing two, three, four shots in a row, which can be when things tend to tend to really spiral. So I think we can apply this sort of framework to different to different aspects of the game as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and for like you said, for some players that might not be the approach, right? For some it might be just all right, mistake, next point. Play to my Definitely. strengths. Right. If I'm John Isner, I'm not hitting second serves. <laughs> right. or, or or whatever right but it, this is where the the decision making framework and process is is individualized and, absolutely and then that is what should be practiced and i think that's really the takeaway here is come up with this and then practice it get really good at your system so that you learn to trust it and you go to it under pressure you go to it at the beginning of the match the middle of the match the end of the match and use it and practice that as something. If you're constantly looking to change your decisions based on the score or winning and losing, you'll never have a reliable system. You'll simply be kind of a chameleon who's always just changing things regardless. And that's not what the best players do. The best players, they have a system and they, they want to perfect that. So um, any last thoughts, Josh? No, I mean, I th- I think, you know, our, our systems can change over time, right? Our games evolve over time. Our, as you get you know, older. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> I, I recently had a uh, a milestone birthday myself, so uh, so turning 30. And uh, yeah, no, I think, you know, our games can can shift over time. I think that's, that's natural, um, whether that's for adult players, junior players, um, and... Yeah. And, you know, so, and, and so can that decision-making process, but I think it's, it's important that we, we figure out what works for us and that, that it's, you know, high percentage, that it makes sense, that it's, you know, that, that it's simplified and that, that it's something that we can apply to matches and, you know, over, over time, over the years that can shift. And, and that, you know, I think we've seen that with, with pro players. I think someone like Nadal, for instance, he used to be, you know, much more of a, sort of a grinder counter puncher and you know as his career progressed he said i don't want to be you know ne- needing to play these really long points all the time and started being a lot more aggressive especially with his forehand and i think we we see that with other players that their games shift over time and that decision making process can shift as well based on your 
current strengths and weaknesses. But I just, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's really important that with whatever our strengths and weaknesses are, we develop a system that works for us. And yeah, as, as you said, Brian, for some players, it's, it might be something like what I just said with that second serve. Okay. I, I double fault that I'm going to maybe a second serve for that first serve or I hit an unforced error. Okay. Then I'm going to, you know, I'm making an adjustment for that next shot for other players. They have that clearly defined system. They like to play in a certain way. They like to play aggressively. They, they know that that's how they play best. And if, when, if they hit an unforced error, they're going right back to that system that works best for them. And I think that, that makes sense. I just think it's, it's important to be really aware of our game, aware and honest of our game, of our strengths and weaknesses, so that we can develop a system that works for us. Yeah, exactly. So all good points. So, well, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening. If you would like a copy of the study, feel free to send us an email at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we'll also have more info on today's episode in the show notes. If you are enjoying the content that Josh and I discuss on the show, please rate and review the podcast so other tennis enthusiasts can find it more easily. Additionally, to be notified of new episodes, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube. You can also check us out on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership, where you can learn about the benefits of being part of the Tennis IQ podcast community. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you in our next episode.